Design Case Study with Darren Fulwell, Part 1. The Overview, Episode 36. Welcome back, my friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. We have another episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast, where zigabytes are faster than gigabytes. As always, our goal is to provide you with real-world context around technology. I'm ZigZiga, and I am your host. Hey, ziglets out there, nerds, geeks, and ziglets out there. We have a special guest today, um, someone that is another uh, a CCDE, like myself, um, over 20 years of experience in this industry, in this field that we that we love and that we hate at the same time at times. Um, he... He's a, a Cisco champion, so if anyone's familiar with the Cisco champion program, he's also on the CCI Advisory Council. A number of uh, just great achievements um, for this gentleman. Um, he's a, a route, route, routing and switching CCIE, and like I said, he's a CCDE. Um, so if uh, without any further ado, um, Darren Fulwell is joining us today, and I, I am really excited. Um, we met on LinkedIn a few, a few months back, probably six months ago now, and... Um, yeah, it must be a while now, six months ago, and uh, um, we met face-to-face at Cisco Live this past year in the U.S., in Orlando, um, so I, I finally got, you know, worked together with you in emails and everything, and finally got you on on the on the, the podcast here today. So, well, thanks again for joining. Um, we have a great show for everyone, um, and really just, Darren, uh, how are you doing today, man? Yeah, pleasure to be here, Zeke. It's uh the weather's not so good in the UK at the moment, but uh, yeah, our heat wave is, is finished. But uh, you know, it's it's warm, a um, warm welcome. So you know, awesome, awesome, good to be here. Um, so the weather's bad there. I mean, we have like thunderstorms here, um, and I'm in uh, uh, <laughs> upstate New York uh, right now in the US. So are you having like uh, really bad weather there too? Ah, uh, no, it's 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 just grey and uh, and whatever. We we've had glorious sunshine since. Um, May and it's where are we now? We're just coming into August, so uh, oh wow, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a shock to the system, but uh, we're we're getting used to having a little bit more rain. It's, all right, uh, it's all good. Well, again, I, I really appreciate your your uh, uh, your time today, joining me for a conversation discussion around the topic at hand. Um, so let's just, if you don't mind, give a little background about yourself for our listeners. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, as you've mentioned, I'm a, a CCIE. I've been a CCIE now for, for 10 years. Um, it's one of, one of those things where you get to be a CCIE and, of course, you stop doing the stuff to the same level of detail in terms of configuration and everything. Kind of moved on to become a designer, no, a designer. And that's where where the CCDE comes in and the, the whole the whole learning process behind really taking a different angle um to your career really really hit me um in in a in a big way and i love it this is definitely the the area to be in because you're able to bring experience to the table look at different technologies um a bit of you know going through formal processes but also bringing a bit of compromise and a bit of pragmatism to the to the table as well all of the business um elements bring bring them all together to uh, to give a customer solution that really you know does what the customer needs it to do, and that I get so much from that. So that's my 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 love from a a, a professional standpoint. 
I'm big into mentoring and helping future generations and that sort of thing as well. The community is is a fantastic place to be at the moment. There's so much going on and so much opportunity to bring new guys along and and give them an opportunity to uh, to feed back into them. And I I love that as well. So, and that's of course where where we stumbled across each other, I guess, through the through the community. I think that. But for me, um, it's, it's such a big thing. I think it's really, really important to uh, to do, especially once you've reached that point where you've got a bit more experience. You can pass that on to the to the future generations. So that's kind of my kind of where I'm at. Well, yeah, no. Um, so you said a lot there, and I would say, like, yeah, I think uh, the design, being at the design level in this industry, is, is definitely the level that fits my personality and my experience. Um, and I don't get me wrong, I love the technology, and I love. The, hammering away at the command line, right? And getting really technical with the technology, knowing all the ins and outs and all the nerd knobs and everything. But um, obviously, as you as you progress in, in the careers in this industry, um, you start going up higher and higher and higher at higher levels within the command structure, the, the organizational structure, and then you start getting less hands-on experience, um, less less time too so you end up doing more design and architectural work so sure but but i think again it's that experience of bringing lots of different angles together which is is what you get to do when you get approached the design area you know you're you're you may have configured lots of cool stuff along the way but you're able to then sort of bring them together to form up solutions and and architectures i think in when you when you do the design work and that's that's where it comes together for me anyway is is being able to to address business requirements and 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 look for the outcomes based on being able to implement those technologies and bringing the new technologies in alongside so no it's all good yeah yeah so um we're here today um and we have a, I guess, a, almost like a, what did you call it, a customer use case? Um, mm, a case study, I suppose. A case, okay, yeah, a case study, right? So we have a case study today that we're going to go over with you um, for a company that is a financial company based in London, right? That's right. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, th- I thought this one was a good good one to talk through, really, because it addressed a, f- a few different areas. And uh, just, just, again, an example of how you'd approach uh, a, a larger scale design piece of work, I suppose. These these guys were um, um, a customer of mine from a few years back. They are um, have a financial company, as you say, based in London, but they had a, a parent company in the states who mandated a lot of um, regulatory um, stuff on them and so on. And they had to adjust their um, their operation really to fit within within these these new mandates. I mean, the uh, um, they were in a position where a lot of their kit was going into life. They had um, an office in the centre of London and a, and a DR location in a, a colo. Um, like I say, the kit was going into life. They had a load of servers installed in the office and in server rooms and uh, loads of bits and pieces of connectivity into different um, MPLS and internet um, provision. And they needed to consolidate it and sort it all out. One of the things that the the parent company said was, you know, no server rooms in, in your offices. You've got to have purpose-built DCs if you want to do this properly. Um, and so we had to look at, at helping them along with that, look at how they, they did their server infrastructure and their networking to uh, to accommodate. So it's quite quite an interesting and wide-ranging thing to do. 
Well, I mean, from a business perspective, it sounds like there's a lot of drivers, a lot of requirements, and then a lot of constraints. Um, from the parent company in, in North America, um, and and they're pushing it down into this financial company in London. So I, I'm look. I can't wait to get into this and get some of the details. So um, where do you want to start? Well, that's what we can talk through the the sort of constraints and everything that that sort of wrapped around the the whole project. I guess, as I say, it was about um, really building a new network architecture for these guys across, um, still across their same office location, but they needed to push out into into now two DCs, one for Prod and one for DR. Um, there are a load of legacy um, uh, circuit provision and stuff for, for, from their internet and their MPLS. They need to get rid of that. They need to put in resilient, redundant um, uh, routing and, and uh, new networks into the two new locations. The, the compute and storage environments were old and creaking, and so they needed to uplift all of that and bring all that into the new uh, the new locations. Um, some interesting constraints around that. Obviously, the timescales are always interesting. With <laughs> yeah, things. they want it done tomorrow. Yeah, they just are what they are, right? <laughs> yep. So, so but you've got that that whole thing with the legacy circuits, right? There were there were tight, quite tight timescales on these things, because if we went too too long, they'd have to. Um, renew them and so that's another 12 months or another 24 months and so you know the, the time scales were tight for that we needed to be sure that was good but hey that's standard we kind of put that to one side it, it just is what it is more interestingly they had to to look at moving these servers out of the the office location and into these these other purpose-built dcs but they weren't able to change in the ip addressing Oh, so they they had to maintain whatever subnets and IP addresses they had in these locations mm-hmm. um, as they moved the the servers to the let's say the data centers. Yeah, and that's and that's the fun, right? So yeah. you've got to not only do that while you're moving it, but also once you've moved it and 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 maintaining between prod and DR. So it's kind of a kind of a three way um, layer two DCI problem there, which we'll we'll come back to in a bit more detail. Well, it's so. it's one sentence, right? It's like it's like one small <laughs> sentence, and it means so yeah. much work. Exactly. Don't change IP addresses. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. Okay. You know. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was so there was that one. Um, the the other big thing with these guys was they got a really strong support team they you know really great guys who know loads about loads but they didn't have much time and that made it interesting because those guys didn't have time to go learning new technologies and loads of new things and new capabilities they had to kind of rely on what they already knew and so we couldn't go changing everything and making it all different we had to maintain a lot of the the similar uh, similar technologies and similar ideas to what they're already using which brings its own constraint right yeah it's, it means that, th- that there's no retraining and that sort of thing yeah you can't do some new funky you know technology i mean you can't and even if you had something that wasn't necessarily new if they're not used to running bgp let's say you can't just throw in bgp you have to keep it very similar to what they have today yeah, and it's interesting because, uh, and again, you'll you'll remember this Sig from from doing the CCDE, that when you're approaching a design um, in a formal way, what you need to be considering is what all the different types of constraints are on the technology choices you make. 
Now, those constraints can be specific to, yeah, does this kit support that protocol or does that, um, you know, are you able to get that bandwidth from, from these type of interfaces or whatever those things are? But you also have to look at the organization and say, right, actually, can the organization cope with this amount of change to the way they operate? Or do you want to maintain their operating model as it is and just and just modify that? And those kinds of things are really, really important. I think it's, you know, we can go geeking out about putting in the latest tech and all the rest of it, and it'd be fantastic, but it might not work for them operationally. And that's really, really key. So I've started to kind of call on what you just kind of articulated um, and defined. I kind of started calling that maturity levels of an organization. Sure. Like a, a... you give them a, a maturity level, and that can be like very low, low, medium, um, high, and very high, uh, like a five-point scale. Um, it's traditionally what I use, and the intent there is to, let's say, let's just pick a technology real quick just so that listeners can understand. So let's say software-defined data center, right? So very vendor agnostic, not talking out a specific uh, vendor solution here, just saying a software-defined data center. And... You take a software-defined data center solution, um, high level, and you say, can this organization, maturity-wise, take that solution and run with it and manage it and work with it? But it's not just a technology side. It's the governance model within the organization. It's their policies, their processes. It's everything. And so you, you might have a technology solution that, sure, the IT staff might be able to handle it, but can the actual business handle it? Exactly. No, ex- you're exactly right. I mean that that and that was the key here was that that in in fact their IT team, you know, we I didn't we didn't want to push them to to take on and and you use the example of software defined data center. That's exactly the one that we were looking at here because again, you know, from a scale perspective, it's too much. You know, you put you put this new technology in there. It might have been too much to for them to handle and to learn how to hand, to to monitor and support and all that good stuff. When in reality, what they got, what they had, was simple enough for them to support. But what they needed was a newer version, better version of that thing, rather than go go uh, deploying all this new fancy stuff over the top. So, really, really key um, to to the way um, you know the 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 way that we approach the design. Um, I guess the other, the other, so you take that on a little bit further, and, and and really what you were saying here is that you can have all the best validated designs and all the the right in air quotes way of doing things, but in reality you've got to be pragmatic. You've got to turn around and say what is what's the right thing to do in this environment. For example, we've already mentioned the IP address um, constraint that we talked about. In an ideal world, we would never do it that way. We, we would always make sure that applications were designed that they didn't require that that the, the, the old stretched VLAN, right? But sometimes you just can't avoid that. Sometimes you've just got to get on and do it with what you've got. And so pragmatism was the probably the biggest thing when I was doing the study for the DE that really jumped out with this, that that you can have all your design principles and you can have all your validated designs and your your right choices of technology for the for the um, for the requirement. But you've got to be pragmatic about how you deploy that. And I think that's that's been probably the um, you know the biggest takeaway through this whole 
this whole process in in my career anyway i don't know about you well yeah i mean for me it took me a while to realize that you know i got stuck in the technology bubble and i got stuck you know on the hands-on keyboard and typing away and mm -hmm. and you get biased to technologies too and i'm a i'm an eigrp guy and i like running eigrp in a kind of specific topology and we'll not go any further than that because i'm kind of you know pigeonholing uh, <laughs> myself here um but yeah i, I mean I don't know. Have you ever looked at business architecture by chance? Uh, it, it depends on what you mean by business architecture specifically. Yeah, I mean, I started to, to looking around the edges at TOGAF and things like that, but it's this is kind of more of, a, I don't know, it feels more of a, of a natural kind of development of me that I've arrived at this, but it's probably similar kind of uh, kind of approach i don't know yeah i mean just take a look at it at some point i mean it, you know i talk about maturity matrix uh, maturity indexes and a number of th other things too and and not not so different vendors have different um business architecture methodologies sure. um so i try to emphasize you know look at the vendor agnostic version of it don't look at a specific vendor's solution i mean a lot of vendors are doing it now so and and it really is changing the thought process to like um doing what we're talking about here really understanding the business side of things because um in the in the end of it all, the business still needs to run. Like it's not, you know, yeah, you have you were talking about hard coded IP addresses, or you can't change the IP addresses, or something like that. You have a constraint where the IP addresses just can't change. Um, so because the business still needs to run, and it's going to be too much work to change them, um, or too much of a, an outage or downtime, um, or, or or cost for third parties who have to come and do it, whatever that is. Exactly, and it may never get done. But you have to be okay with some of those things because it's a business perspective. It's not an IT decision. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly exactly the point, isn't it? That that sometimes I'm, I'm, I've I work for a VAR. Um, actually, they'll kill me if I if I if I call it a VAR. Um, <laughs> but I work for I work for a Cisco partner um, who um, and um, obviously it's all about building a solution for a customer in the way that I've just just described. But I have worked for other Bars <laughs> where where the solutions that aren't necessarily a solution that they're selling, but a, but a technology, they'll they'll go and they'll try and sell I don't know um, an ACI um, uh, network into into a customer or or whatever. The problem is unless you you put that into the context, the business context that wraps around it, it's never going to be successful. You you have to you have to take those feeds from from the business in terms of operational needs, and in terms of the wider technology needs, because otherwise it's never going to succeed when it's put in as an island on its own. Um, and I think that's really what it boils down to for me. Exactly. And I've been terming this this other term. I'm going to throw it out there that that we as um, designers, and I don't want to just say it's CCDEs, um, Cisco Certified Design Experts. It's designers in general. You don't have to have a certification to design. Um, not true enough. You know, like you, you could be a great designer and not have a certification. Um, same thing with CCIE, you know, it's the same thing. I don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but what I'm trying to say, though, is like we are literally bridging the gap or bridging the divide, however, whatever word you want to use, gap or divide, between the business side and the technology side. That is what we're doing. Um, and there's a huge gap there. There's a huge divide. And if we don't bridge that gap, no one's going to. And I think it's important for us as network designers and network engineers and network architects, whatever role you self-identify as um, to the listeners, um, whatever role you self-identify as, 
to understand that, that we have to start doing this because, um, and I'm getting on my soapbox here, because other organizations within companies are already doing it and we're being left behind. You know, the application team, the development teams, the SaaS teams, the DevOps teams, they're already doing all this. And the network team is getting kind of left behind. Yeah, it is a danger. That, like, I mean, I, I, I see it all the time, right? The, the, when you're, you're in a, a customer and they're wanting to to make changes to the service, and they're thinking about switch ports and utilization and um, IP addressing and host names and all this sort of stuff. When in reality, the business doesn't care a jot about any of that. They just want to know that when their guy ra- rocks up to a site with a with his wireless handheld terminals, that he can do his job to pick stuff off the shelves and get them onto the trucks and get them out. They do not care about all of the stuff that that matters to the to, to us as as IEs as configuration guys. We care about that stuff, but what we need to do as designers is make sure that we can almost abstract the configuration stuff away and put it behind a nice exterior that the that the business people understand from an operational point of view. But that also achieves both at both ends. So it's yeah, I agree with you completely. With with the bridge between the two for sure. Exactly, right? Um and I I, I know this is um a little off topic, but I think it's important to yeah, emphasize. Yeah, totally. Totally. And and <clears throat> you know, this this um particular case study was a good opportunity to to really to to, to use that that uh, thought process and 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 to bring that to, to bear. Um, you know, it was it was f- from my perspective. I was I had a customer there who had needed twenty four seven availability of of a multinational service, and and had to work within these other constraints. And so we had to build a, a, a complete architecture for them that served that purpose. Um, I mean, some of the principles that we started looking at in here, we looked at how to how to minimise the failure detection time. They, the problem with, that they had was a lot of grey failures. They they had circuits between locations which didn't necessarily flag that there was a problem at either end if there was an issue. So you needed to detect that that that, that be able to to put something in place to detect that failure and and route around it, even though you weren't actually getting the notifications from the service itself. Obviously, minimising the the time to bring that service back when there was a failure. You know, really important stuff like that, where rather than rather than try and chase state around the network, you know, routing uh, routing change where uh, um, a link goes down, and and so we start re-advertising an alternative path. If you've got the paths already there in the network, if you drop one link, you can just flip to the other one. You mentioned the IGRP before. There's your feasible successor right there. You know, that that kind of thing, using those sorts of approaches, modularizing the network, right? Really simple stuff like, right, you've got a, a, a campus network and you've got a data center network here and a data center network there. By separating all those out, putting the right layer three boundaries between them, it means that you're limiting the exposure should something go wrong. And, and if there's a, you know, minimize that blast radius, right? So looking at those sorts of things. I like I like how you use blast radius there. That's perfect. <laughs> well, it's, 
you know, it's a very descriptive it's, it's image, right? It is, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if something goes off and takes out a VLAN, then it's it's blown the whole thing up. You know, if you're not careful. Exactly. Now, what, everything you're saying here, though, I mean, these these are requirements, um, guidelines, requirements of trying to make sure there's no downtime um, at all. Sure. You know, minimize the downtime and make sure that things come back up quicker, so we don't have the downtime. Um, and, and honestly. And maybe I'm out of place by saying this, and you'll, you'll call me out on it, I'm sure, if I am. But I feel like, at least in the U.S., and maybe it's uh, situational here, um, that the, a lot of these are becoming requirements that are common, that, that aren't even being talked about. Like, they're, sure. what's the wording I'm looking for? So, like, it, it, at least in the U.S., like, you assume that you have water in your house. You assume that you have, you know, yeah, yeah. you know hot water, you have electricity. Uh, you assume certain things, right? These are becoming assum- assumed requirements, not something that are called out anymore. And I feel like the IT environment is becoming an assumed requirement. Internet's going to work. like, And it's going to support my applications no matter what. Sure, but I think I think a lot of the time, um, and, and from from what I see, is when this stuff gets implemented, we know how to implement these things, but we don't necessarily do it in a joined up way. So, the grey failure thing, for example, is a big problem. If you've got a uh, you've got a switch stack, right, and the switch in the middle of that stack fails, if you've not connected it up properly, you can basically partition that stack altogether, right? Or if you um, if it stops processing um, in a, a particular point, um, you might want to, to divert traffic around that stack. Well, you might not be able to tell that it's that it's it's kind of failed, but it kind of hasn't. Um, how do you know? You know, it doesn't take any ports down, so you're you you don't reconverge your routing protocol around it. You know, it's those kinds of things that 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 are a problem. In it, with these guys, what they had um, was issues around their internet provision. They would potentially lose connectivity at the uh, at the service provider end of their um, of the their internet links, but their link at the uh, at their end wouldn't go down. Huh. So they'd be pumping traffic out into their into their ISP, and and nothing happens to it. So it's how you deal with those sorts of things. So you start looking at using IPSLA and and BFD is is a god god given thing. I mean, it just just helps so much with these kinds of problems um, that that you can run it over the top of um, the, those sort of layer two layer you know the the circuits that that basically gives you that ability to flip stuff over much more quickly. You know, using those sorts of capabilities helps you out, right? Helps you out a lot. So long as you've got um, the rest of the network built to, to accommodate. So make sure you're using a routing protocol that, use, that, that can, can use BFD, you know, that, that kind of thing, right? Um, those, that, that sort of stuff's really important. To, one of the things that, that we try and do for our customers is, is instead of monitoring circuits and, and monitoring interface up-downs and monitoring the availability of devices on the network, monitor the services that the customer is using. Um, that way, you know whether or not, even though a router might be up, it might not be passing traffic properly. Um, if you're monitoring the service, you know that the traffic the, the, the traffic is being passed properly, or that it's failed over to its to its backup or whatever. So it's you know it's, you're kind of abstracting away again the detail, the the devices and the configuration that uh, in in favor of the actual application and the service that you're running over the top of it. I think that's really important. 
no, I, I agree 100% there. I think you're right on. And, I, I mean, you're doing things to, to, again, like we said, minimize the failure. Um, and, and these grave failures are extremely hard to, to detect usually. Sure. So you have to call out some of these, um, what do you call it, maybe secondary solutions, I guess, or yeah. uh, whatever whatever you want to call it, right? BFD is not a normal you know, it's not a routing protocol. You know, it's not a layer two, you know, VLANs or spanning tree or anything. It's almost kind of a, a kind of an overlay um, detection thing, isn't it? Almost you're, you're running it over the top of whatever whatever um, connectivity you've got. So, you know, I think I think that that kind of thing is really, really key. Um, you another thing is is um, HA where, where you have a two devices which which have some kind of stateful failover capability um, between the two you know that that can go wrong and when it goes wrong you either end up with a split brain type situation or um, or, or the, the, the state doesn't transfer properly between the two elements or whatever again it's that kind of gray failure that you're trying to detect against so how do you do that well you make sure that you monitor the service that's passing across those things. And if that fails, then you need to look at, at, at rerouting you around the problem. You know, it's those kinds of issues that you're you're trying to protect against. I think. Yeah. Are Are you doing like any loop, uh, like LFAs, loop free avoidance, or fast reroute, or anything like that? Ah, uh, so yeah. I mean, we don't tend to go. See, now this is this is the, the the gap in my knowledge and the gap in my experience. Really, I, um, from a service provider perspective. Not a thing. I mean, I do. I've I've learned those technologies because I've had to for certification purposes. But this is very much about using um, uh, using the services provided by service providers to do all that. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I mean, EIGRP kind of has a, an LFA. It uses a feasible successor feature, and so it, it kind of has a built-in LFA. But um, so you wouldn't actually do LFA connection. Uh, no, I mean in this in this scenario, actually, we we were using EIGRP through throughout. So, so basically, what we ended up with was a, a triangulated network um, with um, two connections between the two DCs, one for 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 carrying replication as a primary, and then and then as a failover to for everything else. But EIGRP was sat there behind the scenes looking after everything. So the topology database was there with all the routes in it um and and you know uh, you once you put bfd on over the top of that the failover is you know instantaneous exactly almost, you know yep. as, as as good as it's going to get right so so and and that's the beauty of it so you your result you're getting around the gray failure situation you're you're by using those two pieces of of fast dete- uh, detection of failure and then the minimizing the time to restore the service by having the feasible successor there already um, in ready to go. So, you know, that, those are the sort of sorts of things that, you know, are, are really key in this sort of environment. Um, we, um, we ended up um, to service the, the, uh, the layer two requirement. That was quite an interesting one. So we used um, uh, rather than trunking VLANs around the network, we wanted to maintain that separation and that modularity and so we ended up using um uh, another cisco um uh, protocol this time it's otv okay so you but yeah you didn't want to be spanning vlans all over the creek all over the place yeah running a spanning tree and exactly we wanted to minimize that blast radius right so so we wanted to keep those those nice and self-contained um 
as far as is possible. But then, um, obviously, we still had to to get that that um, uh, that VLAN or, or that that subnet around the network. Um, and so, by using OTV the, as an overlay, um, obviously, it's layer three between the sites. It's it's an encapsulation um, over the uh, over IP. So um, we used um, a series of um, ASR one thousand routers. Okay. Yep. Um, to to do the encapsulation, which was which was great, um, and it allowed us to to do it across not just two sites but three. Um, so we were able to span um, subnets between all three locations. And so you must have like some sort of point to point links between each site. We we just used the the same IP uh, routed transit that that was um, used for all the other traffic because it's. Um, uh, there was no requirement to set, separate that traffic from uh, any other, so it was Perfect. just using the triangulated path, so which which was great. But then it got interesting. Then with the particular models of the of the routers, what we had was two on each site um, in the DCs connected to two Nexus nine Ks, which were doing the the actual um, VLAN routing and the and the layer two. Um, we ran out of interfaces on the ASR, so we had to connect each ASR to a local 9K only. But that actually worked in our favor because if you lose an Nexus 9K in that way, you lose the ASR that's connected with it completely as well, and you don't end up with a situation where the OTV has to detect which ASR is active for which, um, which VLANs and that sort of thing. There's no intercommunication going on it's there's no negotiation happening it's very hard stop of lose 9k lose the asr associated with it and bang everything flips over to the other one and so what i'm trying to illustrate there is that there's there's actually a time and a place for when you've not got an ha stateful switchover scenario there's actually a time and a place for a fate uh, for, for actually creating a fate sharing scenario because by by tie in the fate of one of those ASRs to one of those 9Ks, you lose the 9K, you lose the ASR. Everything just flips over and it's predictable and it flips over together at the same time. Um, meaning, like I say, that the, the, the thing becomes a lot more predictable, a lot more controllable. Um, and that has its own operational benefits, right? No, yeah, exactly. I think I think what you just said there, because if you had the ASRs still online as the 9Ks were offline, I mean, you would have to do some funky stuff with OTV and to determine that the actual subnets are or that site is down, even though the you know the OTV router is still online. So, I think it makes sense for the fate sharing there. Yeah, and I think I think that there's that's another interesting point of um, where the pragmatism comes in because naturally what you think is right okay i'm going to put a, a device in here and i'm going to cross connect it to 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 whatever switches i've got available and and so that if if anything fails i've got multiple paths well actually in a scenario like that you're almost better just letting pr the primary one die and mm -hmm. letting it fail to the secondary one because it's more controlled and more well, easy to understand and more predictable i think you get into a, a possible situation of over engineering a solution 
right? Exactly. And, and if you don't look at the failure cases and actually really think them through, you could you could do that, right? You could have everything dual home to the nine Ks, um, everything dual home to you know the provider links or however you want to do it, and then you might be missing something. You might be over engineering it, spending too much money, too much time, too much resources that you don't need to. Agree completely. Yeah, and and that and that was you know again a big a big driver here. The the guys needed it to to work, and they needed it to work in a way that they understood quickly what was going on at any given time. Yeah, simplicity. You want it, you're trying to keep it simple yeah. too. So you got you got <laughs> staff that that may not be able to manage a complex solution. Yeah, yeah. Always, always. Um, you know, and 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 we you know. Uh, you, we mentioned before the thing of, of always having the latest tech and, and whatever else. And yes, it gets more and more complex. Every every layer that you put on top, to some extent. I mean, I don't know. Again, it depends. <laughs> it depends on the audience, right? Again. Oh, true. It's, I mean, I, I of, you know, if I have an underlay to my overlay and overlay, and then another underlay, and here I have exactly. five different overlays. Ex- you know, at some then, point, it's going to get complex. Yeah, but then you've got your your operator guy. Who just sits there and sees a menu and a dashboard, a GUI, and whatever, and he just goes, "Oh yeah, no, it's green. It's all fine." As far as he's concerned, it's a lot simpler. And how many different protocols are are in that underneath that? that yeah, that make that happen. Exactly, right? exactly, exactly. And uh, it's, I was reading um, uh, on Network Collective one of the short takes from from Russ White. Right. Um, He's he's got a uh, always has a beer in his bonnet about complexity, but he makes exactly this point that that you can you can call something simple, but really all you're doing is looking at an abstraction of the complex that sits underneath it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes complexity is important and and helps you. You know you can't always look at complexity as a bad thing. I think it's the reflection of the complexity is the important thing. It's the who's using what at what level is the important thing. So, uh, yeah, it's one of the, uh, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, a design principles blog at the moment. I'm building up very slowly. Where's that located? Just so. It's, uh, I got a, a, a blog spot, um, blog that I've just threw together. It was a Cisco champions thing, but I had a bit of a challenge. One of the champions went, I'm going to blog this weekend. And I went, I've not got a blog. And they went, go, go do a blog. So, so I went, built a blog on my, um, uh, logged into to Google, found Blogspot, and and started uh, blogging on there. So I'll, um, I'll give you the, the details to put in, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. That'd so, be great. So people can, get, can traverse. It's, yeah, it's networkshakunin um, dot um, blogspot dot com. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, at the moment it's it's fairly basic. There's not a great deal on there, but but I'm building up a set of of design principles at the moment. Um, and the, uh, the sort of five that I the focus on one is availability. We've already talked about that one. Um, scalability is a fairly obvious um, one, and security. Um, then supportability and simplicity and 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 all of those things don't necessarily mean what you think they do but but you know things the simplicity and the and the elegance of a solution is in the eye of the beholder that's kind of my point with that with that one um and and it just depends on who's looking at it as to whether a solution is simple or not as you already mentioned 
you know, you think of of I don't know um, ACI or or one of the one of these these um, kind of overlay technologies. There's so much going on under the hood there um, that if you really want to understand how it works, then you've got to understand ISIS and BGP and uh, um, all the, the the proprietary stuff. EVPN, uh, yep. yeah, 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 yeah. All of all of the all of the stuff, right? To to really get a grasp of what it's doing. But someone might could come along, a, a server admin can come along and just drag a server into a particular EPG and it works. And as far as they're concerned, that's really, really simple. So, you know, it is very much, simplicity is very much in the eye of the beholder, I think, on that one. It's very simple and then it's very quick. Exactly. You know, as long as it works, exactly. it's very quick. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, that's the whole point. The whole point is that, they, you know, we're, we're putting more complexity in into the the solution, but it sits under the hood. Um, and so people who are using it are using it at the level of abstraction they need to use it, uh, is the way I look at it. But, uh, yeah, and no, I think it's, um, and, and, you know, it's useful complexity, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, sometimes we, we have something that's complex and then we package it in a simple manner. Right. I mean, exactly. maybe that's the easiest way I can articulate that, you know, and so that maybe the people that can understand the complexity of it can go in and, and look at the un, under the hood. Right. Let's let's use a car, for example. Uh, you know, we have automobiles, sure. we have cars. Right. And I would say they're complex machines. Um, but on a day to day, do you do I know everything about the car and how it runs? I my dad's a mechanic um and has been for years <laughs> and I never went down that route. I know how to change no. tires, how to how to put gas in the car, check the oil, right? But I don't know what the alternator the alternator does. I don't know. I know there's a battery. I know there's a computer somewhere in the car. Um <laughs> but you get what I'm saying like like from my perspective a car is fairly simple because I'm using yeah. it to get from A to B. That's my the purpose. Exactly that. Exactly that. I think that analogy would resonate with everyone because, you know, completely, that- completely. And and you can have levels of simplicity, right? You can you can say, right, okay, well I've got a, a you know, a, a manual uh, car where I still need to to work the gearbox and and do the 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 stuff. And then you've got a a Tesla where you just yeah. get in and you just point, sit back. point and yeah, exactly. You point and go, right? And then you just say, I want to so, go here you know. vocally, right? Eventually. <laughs> I, okay. Don't quote me on that. That's probably Hell not a yeah. real feature, but eventually voice recognition and <laughs> tell them where you want to go. And you just sit there. There's not even a steering wheel at some point, right? That's it. You'll, you'll, you'll hail it through your app and you'll say, right, I want to go from, from here to here. And, and the car will just turn up and you just get in it and it will take you where you want to go, right? So that's, yeah. But that's the point, isn't it? It's about uh, there's still a load of complex stuff going on under the hood there that we don't know about. And it's a different type of complex to, to what was traditionally under the hood of a, of a car. But it doesn't matter because it's abstracted away. Exactly. And so you use it in the way you would use a car, but it's just easier than it ever was before. So yeah, no, I mean it's um, that's, yeah, it's a really good analogy. That I like that. It, it, it just came to me. So if you want to trademark, I'll mm. trademark it real quick. It's like bits of tech, <laughs> and that is yes. trademark. No, um, no, I think it's no, good. Just, I, it's it, okay. I've just written it into my blog. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a good analogy because I think it really 
makes it very clear because this day and age, pretty much everyone that's after you know older than sixteen has a car or an automobile of some sort, truck, car, van, whatever you have, right? Bike, mm-hmm. uh, motorcycle, not a bike, like not a bicycle, but a motorcycle, but even a bicycle. Like, do you actually understand how a bicycle works? If you go that far, I mean, some people probably could understand a bicycle quicker than a car, right? Um, but we're obviously a little off topic, but I think the analogy the analogy was uh, <laughs> so, beneficial. So I think so. Um, kind of That's steering good. the ship back around to the the, the, <laughs> the design use case uh, that we have. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's there's another sort of example um, I'd use of of the the way you use the um, the the really using the routing protocol, I suppose, to, to handle failover. Um, the particular example with these guys was that they had two in, two different internet provisions in their two um, uh, their two DCs, and they wanted to be able to fail over quickly from one to the other. This is a bog standard bog standard problem. Um, but um, you know, it's it's that thing of you've got a triangulated network. Um, do you have do you, do you in your two DCs, do you have a default route at both locations and, and advertise them out and weight them? Or how do you handle that? Um, I mean, in the scenario that, that I've got here, what, what we did was we, we took a default route from the primary, uh, sorry, from the secondary location. And we actually used um, a zero slash one route and a one to eight slash one route from the primary location. So at any given time, you always had your backup route in the routing table ready to go should your primary routes fail already calculated ready to go um in the rounding topology uh, exactly. in the topology table and all it is is it's just a feasible successor it's, it's not in this case it's not even that because it's already in the routing table uh, yeah, yeah. so you've got you've got the slash ones there which the more specifics and then you've got your your default route as your as your backup route um you know, and again, using um, IPSLA to to withdraw those those uh, slash ones should you need to. It's another good example of where you're not having to wait for the routing protocol to do its thing before you can actually use the new path um, it, it, because the route's already there, you know, and, and there was no need to to maintain any state between the two internet connections in order to, to say, right, I prefer this one over that one or, or whatever. It was it was purely down to to actually using just the, the basic routing capability, right? Of yep. longest longest match. Exactly. You know? So uh, you know they, these these are the sorts of things anyway that we used in particular in this location. And, and and that could be something that you look over, you don't even think of, but it's a simple. It's really 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 simple. Yeah yeah yeah. And 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 I suppose that's again one of those things. You know you don't have to go for the complex solution every time. If there's an easy way of doing stuff, man, just choose the easy thing, Just do thing, it. Right? Yeah, just do it. Just do it. Because <laughs> it just, you know, just takes the pain away from it, you know. And, and you know that that fundamentally, the, the longest, mat, longest match is always going to work. You know, if, if the routing is, if the router works, then the longest prefix match is always going to work. And so, you know, you, you know there that you're not relying on anything else to, to, to make it work. Um, those, you know, those are the sort of primary things, really, that we, we went through the, the process with this. I mean, there's a whole load of other stuff around how we 
picked up and moved VMs between um, uh, between locations and all the rest of it. But really, once OTV was in place, once the routing was in place and, and everything um, was working, it made it a whole lot simpler to actually then to use the environment to to do all that work about about moving workloads around the network. Um, and so it's that same thing again of, of build the foundation, make sure that it it does all the things you need it to do and as quickly and as efficiently as possible. The rest of the stuff just becomes something that you can do. You, you, it's an enabling technology, right? Exactly. Which is which is what the network should always be. Well, it's enabling, and I, I like to say business enabling, but yeah, it's enabling. Exactly. And yeah, it's a business enabler, right? And that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So really, that that uh, you know was was how we got to to a position where um, we were able to do these things. Now, what the way that the that, that I typically approach something like this is is obviously you're not going to do this big bang. You're not going to just walk up to a network and go throw in loads of more kit or throw in loads of circuits and it's just done right so so the the, the approach um that i always take with these sorts of things is to build a storyboard um so you start with um with the, with the network as it's going as it is now and you your last frame on the storyboard is is what the way the network's going to be when you're finished and then for each change each major change you make through the network you have um a picture that just gradually changes all the way through change by change to to get to the end the end game you'd be amazed at how much benefit you get from doing that because what you're what you're basically doing is framing all the changes that you need to make as you progress through building the network and 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 changing the um the operating environment so every step of the way you've documented the operating environment as you go um it's a really, really useful tool. I'd recommend anyone to, to to do that. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. I don't think I've ever termed it storyboarding before. Well, if you think about it, it is just like a cartoon, right? When it exactly. boils down to it, you, you have a, a start frame and an end frame and everything in, in between. So um, it, it tells a story. I mean, this is this is what I try and do with all my documentation is to tell a story about how um, an environment is built why it's built the way it's built and and the, the the story over time of how it gets to where it needs to be and and i think doing it in that way people are able to relate to it easier and understand it easier you know i think it's you know it's important so yeah no that's a takeaway for me so um now i think i've done it like i said i think i've um done it a number of times where I'm sure. doing maybe a huge, a huge project, whatever technology, whatever mission or, or end state that we're trying to do, let's say a data center migration or something like that. Um, and I might have, you know, we're going to do this change. We might have 15 different things that we have to do. And here's a, here's what's going to happen in step one, or here's what's going to happen in the first maintenance, first change. And then the next change might be a month or three months later, or six months yeah. later, yeah. you know, and then we do number two. Well, you know, number one and number two, this is what happens at number one. This is what happens at number two. And then this is the end state. So um, I've done something very similar, but I really like the storyboarding I, the term a lot. So... I think I think the as I say for for me it's as much about documenting what you're doing without having to document it almost because you've you've drawn it out and you understand where you're going from and to 
you, you take everybody with you along the story and that's including the people who have to support it the people who are who are, who are sponsoring the project you know if, you, if you're doing it in that way it plays out well to everybody um you know i've, I've sat in front of boards of directors and and walk through a storyboard and shown them from you know how how their environment changes from one thing into another but then I've, similarly i've sat down in front of a, a, a team of support guys and done the same thing and they can understand at any given time exactly what their their environment looks like because of the the way it's structured so and this was a this was a great example for that it sounds like it just resonates with them exactly exactly it is being able to i guess being able to communicate um with whoever your your audience is but um pictorially is always a a strong way of doing that and you know as i say that with with a timeline associated with it then it's uh, it just becomes a uh, a very natural way of 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 knowing where you are at any given time so so at this point um so i i think we you know, we have an outline for the show and everything that I'm sure people kind of understand that we have, like we've outlined talking points and whatnot. I, I think um, what what I would like to do, and I won't edit this, I'll just leave it in the recording so people understand. I would like to kind of talk about maybe some of the stuff that you guys did from a low-level design. I think we have like a couple bullets on that from a campus land, data center land, um, and then kind of the server farm virtual environment. Um, and then maybe we can use the additional... Um, items that we have listed uh, as follow-on shows because I think sure yeah, yeah I think the additional items here could be like a, a part two and a part three and maybe even a part four because there's sure. concepts here that I would definitely want to ask questions about and, and we're probably going to be hitting the hour mark um, at some point here so uh, I think that that's good I wanted to talk with you on it we didn't really prepare so mm. If that makes sense yeah, to you, yeah. let's jump into the low-level design right. items here, which this this show will give us an overview of this kind of design use case, case study, whatever you want to call it. And then we can follow up on another you know episode in the future and talk about the next item and then so on and so forth. So yeah, so so what did you, you could do for your kind of low-level design solution for this? Okay, well, the... Uh, it's pretty pretty standard stuff certainly for the for the time um things gosh it's amazing how quickly things move on right but uh (laughs) you know we even even now but uh yeah now i mean the 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 campus land environment was was basically um a fairly standard office um type type uh, environment really so um multi-floor location um basically with a a switch stack of um it would have been cisco 3850s i should imagine um uh, connecting the users and the um the, the pcs and the um and the, the trading handsets they used um into in, into the access network if you like um and then um, with with connections 10 gig connections trunk down to a pair of um Catalyst 6807. So um, again, the, the, the sort of chassis-based um, Cisco uh, Catalyst switches into a VSS pair, um, so that you were able to to use LACP uh, to to bond those those connections up to the switch stacks. Um, the idea being again to to provide minimal um, minimal downtime, right? So so you lose you lose a 68. Um, 
it fails to to the other one if it was the prime uh, if it was the primary and LACP stays um, basically bonded so that you've still got a, a layer two path down into the into the the core of the network and even layer um, three too right if you, I don't know if you have any layer three sure sure dual I mean in then. this case in this yeah 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 of course and and I mean in this this scenario. Yeah. I mean, this scenario worked because the because the layer two requirement they used. Um, I mentioned the the, the handsets, uh, the the trading handsets. They use multicast uh, quite heavily, so it's a, a voice over IP handset, but it has multicast data feeds to it. So um, there was a lot of multicast requirement across the across the network as well. Um, but it was it was very much layer two down into the into the switch stacks because that's again. What they were familiar with and and what worked um, for them. Now, I suppose if you were going layer three access, you wouldn't necessarily need VSS uh, in that scenario because you could um, you could just have multiple um, dual home but multiple um, separate switches uh, down in the core if you felt that way inclined. Um, so again, it's down to looking at the the failover failover time and that sort of thing as to to what the requirement is. Yeah, um, and I've had some experience with that. I've deployed VSS clusters in the past. Um, and a lot of times in my experience, um, customers will say they're going to stay with Layer 3, and they don't. <laughs> so they, they do like a mixed. Really? They do a mixed, yeah, yeah. you know? And so, But it's the same. Go ahead. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, so, so I always tell them, okay, well, I'm going to just do it in VSS mode. And then, and then that way your access layer, if you're doing a routed design, um, will still work. Because you can dual home to the different physical chassis, and you have two neighbors. Yeah, so you had you had some state, you had some resources to maintain that state, obviously. Um, but at least you have some redundancy from a routing perspective if you're doing like a layer three access design. Um, and then it also lets you still do layer two access designs too with LACP to the VSS cluster. I mean that that is that classical thing of right, okay, yeah, we we only need this VLAN in this place, and then of course they decide that they don't, and they need the VLAN elsewhere Elver, because everywhere, some, yeah. some some esoteric little IoT thing that or sensor or something that needs to be on the same layer two network as the controller, which is somewhere else, and you know it's that sort of situation, right? So again, comes back to that pragmatism thing of, of saying. Yes, this spits best practice, but there's always going to be a need to do some more. So you're, yeah, in that sense, you're you're quite right. Um, using VSS, giving you that 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 sort of layer two fast failover using LACP bundles is is always going to help you. So yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a definitely a thing. Um, interestingly, they didn't have much in the way of wireless. I mean, this was. This was a couple of years ago, I guess, um, and and so wireless was pretty minimal. Um, but um, you know, there's always that thing in the back of your mind: you you are going to go wireless at some stage. I um, primarily down to the fact that it was a trade that had trading floor and and so on. So they needed what was perceived at the time to be a security thing and. Uh, uh, an always up type availability thing of of the the floor always being available. So, yeah. um, but while wireless was you know it was always going to be a thing. So so a couple of wireless LAN controllers in um, connecting back to the, the VSS and in this in this instance using the stateful failover so that uh, so that everything was was synchronized between the two. 
um, they were in the same physical location, so there's no no real no real difficulty with that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting. So that was again, like I say, this really really bog standard um, campus LAN environment, or certainly for the time. Um, the DC networks. I mean, obviously, what we had to do here was pick up and and we, we were creating new DCs in effect for these guys so um and, and they were migrating from a a mishmash of of servers um connected to this to this um old campus network um we were basically putting in place a flex pod scenario so um uh, cisco ucs netapp storage um with um ucs uh, fabric interconnects and nexus um 5ks all bundled into it because uh, the the basically the service provider i work for the partner i work for are a, a big or were a big flexpod partner so we made we made a lot of money doing them and we were very good at them so that's what we we were putting in for these guys um and once you're doing that then obviously you need something um yeah, something fairly decent from a network perspective that that will do do the necessary. Um, what we ended up with was Nexus 9K switching. Um, ACI was a thing at that point. It was just um, it was relatively early on in its um, in its lifetime. But again, it comes back to that that nerd knob thing of of saying, well, look, do you want to put the latest and greatest thing in here and uh, and whatever, and learn how to manage it and control it and all the rest of it as you're as you go, or do you want something that has the familiarity? Yes, it's Nexos rather than iOS, but it's the same kind of feel to it and the way it operates, um, and and have that 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 sort of comfort of of being able to to work with it and and whatever. The scale wasn't massive, okay. In terms of the physical connectivity here, you're only talking about connections into a flexpod and and a few other bits and pieces so right. you're, you're not talking, talking like thousands of servers physically no 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 you're talking you're talking you know if you're lucky um a dozen maybe maybe two dozen um physical 10 gig connections oh okay in yeah. each location <laughs> not that when, much when you're talking that it's, it's nothing at all really. in each data so, center though right so, yeah 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 but i mean obviously that's still not it's, it's, this isn't large scale no, a pair of Nexus 9Ks uh, in each data center, and you're probably set. Yeah, of course. And and VPC um, in place to do this, this similar kind of kind of thing to what we were talking about with, with the VSS pair. Obviously, v, VPC brings its own um, its own little challenges. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But from a layer two point of view, um, perfect for, for trunking those VLANs up out of the nine Ks and into the into the flex pods. And and so that's you know, kept it simple, kept it understandable for the customer, and that's that's the way that was that was done. Um yeah, I mean from a from a um the caveat perspective, obviously at that stage, um and probably still the case actually, the the nine K wasn't able to run a routing protocol over the over a VPC VLAN. And so we had to go down the path of making sure that there were separate layer three connections between the nine Ks to to maintain the the routing protocol and all that good stuff. I mean there's bearing in mind we had firewalls connecting into there as well. We had to consider that for for routing protocol into the firewalls and so on. So you know there's caveats caveats are plenty. 
<laughs> but um, you know, so long as you're careful with them, there was there was no problem. Yeah, yeah. The other the other beauty of it was um, where we were running OTV. Of course, you have to ensure that your MTUs are good, and that's another one that we had to another caveat that we had to sort of squeeze in there and make sure that we we didn't miss that one. There was um, during the the initial build of the the OTV. There was inevitably uh, one link that was um, that the, where the MTU was set wrongly, um, and you know you only find out when it fails over and breaks something, right? So, yeah, unless you do like a test, like a full-on test plan that tests that, but you had to know that's going to be an issue. But then, but then we did. I mean, and that's that's the point, right? So you go through, you make sure that you're testing um, mirrors as far as possible, what yep. real life is going to bring. Right. Yep. So, exactly. Um, so yeah, so, uh, uh, built that into the two locations and, and your network, then your foundation for the whole environment is, is pretty much boxed. Then it's a case of just moving things around. Right. So, uh, you said two locations aren't, isn't there three data centers? Sorry, two, two data centers and one office location. So they were triangulated. Oh, okay. I thought there was three data centers. I got that now. So there's two data centers and there's a, a office location and that office location is treated like a data center from a connectivity perspective. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But initially, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so, um, uh, wow. Yeah, no, it was it was uh, an interesting experience and, and to, to do the whole, the, uh, the opportunity really, and it doesn't happen very often. It's almost almost greenfield but not not quite right where you get to build effectively three new networks um and then migrate things onto them um this is where the storyboarding became really important of course because for from a um it's the step change perspective of being able to say right new network at this location connects to the old network do migration move on to the next one and um what have you it uh, it allowed us to mix and match the um, the elements of the program, I suppose, um, so that we were able to to minimize the impact to the customer. So, Well, awesome. Yeah, good fun. Well, is there anything else specific to the solution that you want to talk about right now without going into any other, like, full-on details on, on the technology? <laughs> any last-minute, well, you know, comments regarding this this kind of case study? No, I think, I think um, as I mentioned, the... the, the the main thing to understand with with the whole thing was was what the what the outcome was for the customer and and the the minimizing the impact and maximizing the availability was the key um storyboarding in the way that that you're you're putting the thing together and and going through the changes to get to the endpoint just gave gave the gave us the opportunity in this instance to to minimize that impact and to and to really understand what it was that we were doing at each step to to make sure that at every opportunity we had the right people supporting the changes at the right time to make it make it happen and get it tested properly the the, the before and after testing for every step to make sure that we knew and this this is probably the biggest thing on this one was that when you make a change, you make sure that you test the same thing before the change as after. <laughs> so, that, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Because, because, because um, we did have an occasion quite early on where we, we omitted to do a, a test beforehand. 
So we did a test after the after the change was made, and this one thing was broken, and we could no one could understand why this one thing was broken, until they realised eventually that that it was broken three weeks ago and had been broken for the last three weeks, and because we hadn't tested it before we did our change, we didn't even know. So it, you well, know, we spent a load of time chasing our tails. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, very yeah. So very familiar one, with that. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I dare say we all are on that one now, but. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that was, you know, those sorts of things are really important, and 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 just uh, it comes with it comes with experience, and it comes with doing these changes over and over, that you you learn that these things are, are necessary. But uh, yeah, no, that was probably the from a from an operational point of view the the biggest thing that jumped out. But yeah, no, it uh, obviously you know a a big piece of work and an interesting piece of work, and and lots to lots to talk about and i'm sure we could talk for ages on on some of the detail of some of this stuff so i'm really sure we can i've got uh one two three four five six seven other topics that we could add like <laughs> I, I, i'm writing more notes in our, our outline here and i'm going to share it with you afterwards Excellent. when we're done recording here today but i just i just wanted to um you know find a good stopping point because i think we have more to talk about with this this uh, design case study here um but a- as we go here though uh darren so any last minute kind of words sure. of wisdom comments um to the listeners i mean this is a chance to anything from a mentoring perspective that you want to kind of say to them that you could that you would maybe want them to take away i think um from a mentoring perspective i mean there's yeah i mean it's a bit of a side a side thing, but it, uh, I mentioned before that the community thing has, has been a really important find for me. Without it, Sig, I would never have met your good self and, and all of those incredible people, all of those incredible people we met at Cisco Live. Um, and, and you know, the time that, take the time that people are prepared to offer you really, um, especially, you know, we, we do the jobs we do. And when we're implementing networks like this one, we spend so much time um, with on our own, you know, out there doing the, the job and, and not necessarily being able to to have, you know, the, the fallback of, of good people to to ask questions of and all the rest of it. I'd say get involved with the community, get to 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 use the people who are who are there. There's some incredible, incredible people who are prepared to to just answer questions and and give you pointers and 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 um, pass on experience really and I think that for me I just just take that all as much as you possibly can because you know that will help you as an individual grow it helps you uh, back in back in the day um, you used to have apprentices right and you'd have you'd have trades where you'd have an apprentice would go and do his thing and he'd work with somebody who was a, an experienced old hand at what they did we don't do that these days it's just not a thing so so use the community as an alternative for that as as a way of of being able to um, to listen to the stories about uh, that people tell about how things used to be, because that gives you context for what we do now. You know, learn from the mistakes that people have made before. You know, I, I think that the community for me, I've, I've really realised that over the last uh, probably six months to a year, that that there's so much value in in being involved with the um, the wider community. So. Yeah, I think that's that's probably what I'd offer at this time. 
Well, I couldn't say it better. I think that was a great uh, last last kind of word, uh, last minute words of wisdom um, from you, Darren. I, I, I again. I really appreciate you joining me today. I think it was a great discussion. Hopefully, our yeah, listeners. Hopefully, our listeners thought so as well. Um, now, I know you mentioned it earlier. You're starting a blog, kind of just it's a baby blog, I guess, right now. But could sure. you just kind of let yeah. us know one last time where that is? Yeah, so it's it's called um, Network Shokunin dot blogspot dot com. So it's um, uh, Network S H O K U N I N. Um, it means uh shikunin is a, a japanese word means uh craftsman or artisan and it's about really um it's, it's part of my journey and trying to learn my my craft and my art you're never done you've always got to learn more Constantly you've always got learning. to look on to and that is that is basically the element of what shikunin means so so from my point of view it's about how i'm continuing to learn and and where i'm going so that's what that's about um, I'm also on uh, the LinkedIn and Twitter is um, at Darren Fulwell. Um, yeah, you'll you'll find me from the notes anyway. So. Yeah, and I'll have them all in the show notes. Your website, your LinkedIn, and your Twitter. As long as you're okay with that, I will have them all in the show notes. Nah, all good. All right. Well, um, again, uh, I'm going to wrap it up here. I really do appreciate you joining us today. And for the listeners, look forward pleasure. to. Yeah, it really has been a great show today. I, I think this is a great design case study today. So, um, And it's been my pleasure, Darren. Seriously, it's been my pleasure. Um, for the, the listeners, um, you know, get keep an eye out. There'll, there'll be some more shows, I think, coming from this show. We'll do some follow-up ones, uh, maybe at Take 2, Take 3, or at um, Episode 2, 3, uh, kind of a small mini-series here with uh, Darren Fulwell. So thank you all very much, and I hope you guys have a great day. Before we end today's episode, uh, I want to bring uh, some light towards um, something new that, that I'm doing. Like all of us in this world, uh, I'm sure you have dreams and goals that you want to accomplish in life. Things that, that you maybe aren't that easy to accomplish, but you're, you're looking towards accomplishing. Perfect example would be like uh, maybe some fitness goals, maybe um, some financial goals, maybe some certification goals in the IT field, like a CCIE or CCDE or CISSP. Those are some great, great examples of goals, right? But maybe you're hitting some barriers in life. Maybe you're not able to commit to some of these goals for some reason. Maybe you're hitting some what I would call limiting beliefs. Um, some of these limiting beliefs that I've had in life are lack of motivation, procrastination, negativity, self-doubt, and fear of failing. Fear of failing being a pretty big one for me. Um, and then also on the fear side, the fear of making the wrong decision. So those two, fear of failing and fear of making the wrong decisions are really big ones for me personally because not knowing which decision to make out of a set of decisions. So let's say you have this option A, B, and C, but you don't know which one to choose. So because you don't know which one to choose, you make no decision. And then a day goes by, a week goes by, a month goes by, and maybe even a year goes by and you make no progress towards your goals because you made no decision. The other aspect, and my wife gets me on this all the time, is you just can't find the time to accomplish your goals. That, that your excuse is there's not enough time to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish in life. And that is a limiting belief because you make the time for the things that are the most important things in your life. And you don't make the time for the things you don't want to do in life. And if any of this 
any of this at all resonates with you, then keep listening. Because I promise you, we're going we're to address these. We are going to, to resolve these and get you to breaking down your barriers. Maybe you are struggling to identify your goals. Maybe you don't even know what your goals are. And that's my friend is where I can help you with too. So I can help you with identifying your goals. I can help you with making sure you're meeting your goals and making sure you're, you're living your dream, living your dream in life every day, every single day. I want to make sure that I, I, I'm very transparent and very clear, right? I have achieved every goal in my life that I've set out to achieve. I am living my dream every single day. But I will say achieving all of the goals in my life wasn't easy. It's not all glitter and rainbows and unicorns and happiness. There were tons of failure. There were tons of barriers in my life towards these goals that I had to overcome. But you know what? I overcame them and you can too. So if you're struggling with a goal or a dream that you have and you are not sure how to get through that barrier that, that is keeping you from accomplishing that, that goal, right? Let's talk. Let's, let's get together. Let's have a talk. We will hash it out on a video call face-to-face. We will discuss the goals you have. If you don't have goals or you don't know which goals, we, we will identify those goals for you. We will identify your end destination in life, where you want to be career-wise, personal-wise, you name it. Um, and then we will set up an action plan for success. An action plan is going to have milestones to achieve your goals. Those goals achieve your end destination. To achieve those milestones, we have baby steps. That is the process. That is a high-level process of what we will do. So if that sounds interesting to you, that sounds like something that will help you and benefit you, head on over to zigbits.tech, uh, zigbits.tech and check out the Work With Me tab to find all the details. Hey friends, nerds, geeks, and ziglets, that's going to close out this episode of the ZigBits Network Design Podcast. Today we are highlighting a design case study with Darren Fulwell. It was part one, the overview. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit zigbits.tech to join the conversation and access today's show notes. Today's show notes will be at zigbits.tech slash 36. If you liked today's episode, if it inspired you, resonated something within you, or provided a level of real-world context, let us know. You can find us on all of the socials, that's Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook by searching for ZigBits. You can also send us an email to feedback at zigbits.tech. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another episode where we will continue to provide you with the real-world context around technology. Bye for now.